it'll be fun. Yeah, it'll be cool. <laughs> it'll be super cool. Yeah, it'll be, yeah, it'll work out just fine. Oh, have we started? We have now started. Yay! All right. Welcome to the Why Aren't You Famous podcast with <clears throat> me, Andrew Grimm, and you... Ellen Cherry. All right, right on. And we're here with our guest today, Sharita Cole-Brown, who is the author of Defying the Verdict, My Bipolar Life, which is a book that she's written about her experience in her life and living with bipolar disorder. Welcome, Sharita. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to see you. <laughs> I'm glad to see you, too. We were just talking about the last time that we saw each other, which was in June yes. at the Sticks and Stones event put on by Peter Brune. Um, I met Peter because of his work with trying to destigmatize mental health issues mm -hmm. and issues surrounding addiction and um, substance abuse disorders. Yes. How did you meet Peter? Were you I, connected with him before that? I knew Peter because I am an alumna of the Park School. Oh, okay. So his yes. daughter, who um, passed away, LSF, yeah. went to the Park School, and he was a teacher at the Park School at the time my children were students there. So that's so interesting. I taught one summer musical theater at Park School. It's such a beautiful campus. It is. And you talk about this in your book, which we're going to get to in a minute. Mm -hmm. But you and I met at the Perper Symposium, which would have been back, I think, maybe almost two years ago. Yeah, or a year 18. Okay. Eight, 2018. Early 2018. And you handed me your book. You were there talking about your book. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't have time to read it until this past year. It's... Um, an incredible memoir. I'm so curious, first of all, about how you were able to remember these things. But before we get into your book, you have a blurb on the, actually what the first thing I wanted you to talk about was um, your a synopsis of your life, if that's possible. Tell us about how you understood and were diagnosed originally and what it's like, if you can, now to live with bipolar. Okay, I was diagnosed with bipolar in 1980. Then fast forward to 1982. I was a senior at Wesleyan University. I was two months away from graduation and I had a psychotic break. Wow. So I had to leave school and um, come home to Baltimore. And that was great. And not great that I had a psychotic break, but it was great that it was. Um, Philippa Coughlin, who was our school psychologist, arranged for two of my friends to bring me home by train. Mm -hmm. In 1980, when I got sick at school, I was immediately hospitalized at the local psychiatric hospital because when my dad came up with the when they, they made the original diagnosis, they felt that I was too sick. They thought I would be a danger to myself and others, and they wouldn't let him take me home. So when I got sick in 1982, so that didn't happen again, Dr. Coughlin had two of my friends take me home by train. Right. And that's that's in the book. But I guess we need to talk about what is bipolar disorder? Yes, What please. does that even mean? Right. Um, bipolar disorder used to be called manic depression. And I actually have a genetic illness my grandmother and my great uncle on my mother's side had bipolar disorder or manic depression. They didn't get to live the life that I get to live. My grandmother who graduated from high school at 16, her life was compromised because she had manic depression. And there, was, there were no treatments at the time for her to get the help that she needed. 
So I think it's important for listeners to understand that there are many mental illnesses, and the mental illnesses that are considered to be most severe are schizophrenia, major depression, and bipolar disorder. And then within bipolar disorder, there are four or five categories, bipolar one being the most severe of those categories. And I have been diagnosed with bipolar one disorder. So in 1982, when I had the psychotic break, it was thought, because it's a brain illness and you're taking these hits to your brain, it was thought that eventually I would need a custodian. So the whole, what the book is all about is how in the face of a true diagnosis, I haven't ended up needing a custodian. They thought, you know, she's not gonna get married. She's not gonna have kids. She's, eventually I would not have any good quality of life, but that's not my life. No, your life has been very different. You married, you have two daughters. You also have a a degree. Two degrees. I'm sorry, two degrees. And what are your degrees in? What are your letters? I have a BA in English from Wesleyan University. And I have an MAT, which is a Master of Arts in Teaching from Towson. So. And you dedicated, you also became a teacher. Didn't you teach for a while? Yes. Yes. I was a teacher. I was a teacher. And I think that like... So one of the things that I noticed mostly about um, your description of your experience, because March 82 is on page. I'm going to flip to the page. I'm going to read a little excerpt from your book here. It says, for me, March 1982 will always mark the point when the royal hues of my life's tapestries faded to grays. Perhaps this is why I remember... Perhaps that is why I remember these events vividly. Your book is incredibly poetic description of your disorder. And as a person who's kept a diary for almost my entire life, when I was reading your book, I was amazed and so impressed at your recall. And I wondered, did you keep a diary during the period of time when you were going through this, when you were first diagnosed? Because in 1980, how were you, you were around 17 or 18 years old. In 1980, I was 21. 21. I was diagnosed at 21. Mm-hmm. That was the first one. That was the were, first one. And they um, put you in the hospital for that one. For, yeah, for 15 days. Okay. And then, for, and then two years later when you had your episode where you were brought back to Baltimore. And it was actually about, it wasn't even quite two years because I was 22. And I had just turned 21. And then it was like a year and three or four months later. And your description of that breakdown, I believe that's the one where you talk about leaving in the middle of the night and going and wandering and getting into someone's car, Yes, um, finding a city paper, writing messages on it. Mm-hmm. And then you also magically tied that to the Underground Railroad and the story of Harriet Tubman, that you were leaving signs for other people who might have your um, special perspective to follow in your path. Which is pretty scary. It's scary. <laughs> it's I, pretty scary. I can't even imagine how you would survive experiencing that but then also what is it like to um to recall those events now as an adult uh, you know further into your adult life with a distance from it having had treatment is it difficult to go back and you're not reliving those experiences but also to to think of yourself as a child you were a child when you were experiencing this what is that like it was for me um it was difficult 
to pull out some of those memories. You know, what I say as far as memoir, what the way I was taught and the way I write memoir, memoir is how I remember it. Right. You know, other people might remember it another way. Um, Lucille Clifton has a very short poem, and it's called Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes. And it just says, they ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories, and I keep on remembering mine. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes time to remember, each of us processes through our own lens of perception. So there were things that I wrote, like one of my sisters, she was like, well, you didn't say enough about me and, you know, this is fiction. And I'm like, no. I said, if you want to, you know, tell your story, then you have to tell your story. But this is what I remember about what happens. Did this you is keep what, a journal when you were going through it? As a I did not. Not as I was going through it. I have journals from different points in my life. Mm -hmm. But as I was going, I wish I had had, you know, journals, but from, and I do a lot of journaling and I have lots of journals, but when I am, had been in periods where I, I lacked insight, I couldn't have sat down right. and written a journal that made any sense to anyone about anything. So what I would do was just sit and remember, just sit and remember, and I remember there's one section of the book, and I don't know what it was, that after I wrote it, I called one of my close friends who was also a reader for the book, and I was like, Vita, I need to read you this section of the book that I just wrote. So she listened to it, and after I read the section of the book, I think I went and watched Lilo and Stitch. You know, I just needed to, I just needed to decompress. And um, my children, I have, two adult daughters, as you said, and Lilo and Stitch is my go-to movie. And we, I finally figured out why Lilo and Stitch yeah, is why? my go-to movie. <laughs> because Lilo is depressed and Stitch is manic. <laughs> I've never seen it. Really, that's so interesting. Yes. I need to watch this film. It is. It Lilo's Lilo and Lilo's not really depressed. Actually, she's grieving. It's about a little girl who lost her parents, and now she is with her, um, like, early 20s sister because their parents died in a car accident. And as Lilo tells her sister, you were way better sister than you are mother. So now she has to raise her. And so it's, it's about, you know, because Disney can get through with some pretty heavy themes. So Stitch they is, do, yes. Yeah, so Stitch is this alien that comes, and he's just really off the chains. But if you watch Stitch... Stitch is a wonderful example of mania. Just un just uncontrolled and, you know, just thinking he's, he's fine and, you know, Leo has to pull him back and... So sometimes he pulls her back. So they're, they're kind of they're back and forth. But I finally, that was what I figured out. I'm like, that's why I love Lilo and Stitch like that. Because I connect. You know, it's like, they're books I connect with. I don't know if you remember, I had talked about in the book about being in eighth grade yes. and, and my eighth grade English teacher saying, you know, there are things in books that we can connect with. There are things in movies that we can connect with. So, you know, if you're having difficulty, you can go and look at something 
fiction or nonfiction that someone else has gone through and be able to say, oh, that's how they dealt with that. And, you know, for me, even with writing this book, one of the things that I think is wonderful about this book, one of the women, um, my nephew's, well, he's my, in quotes, nephew's wife, read the book. And she said to me, she said, after I read your book, she said, I just wanted to walk down the street, pass out copies and say, here, have some hope. Right. Have some hope. Because, because I understand and I, when I share with people, I let them know I am living with a severe mental illness. This is not um, I stubbed my toe or I hurt my fingernail. But what people don't understand and what people need to understand is that bipolar illness is highly treatable. Kay Redfield Jamison has bipolar one disorder. And that's another reason why she would read my story, because I have bipolar 1 disorder, and I'm living explain, well. Uh, explain who she is. Explain who Dr. Okay. K is. Yeah. Dr. K. Redfield Jamison is um, co-director of the Mood Disorders Clinic at Johns Hopkins University. So she has a doctorate in psychology, and um, she is the co-author of the textbook, about manic depression, which is bipolar disorder. So in medical schools across the country and maybe across the world, they read her, her book, book to learn about bipolar disorder. So um, Dr. Jameson is, um, she's just phenomenal. When Plus the fact that she has her own personal experience with this disorder, yes. living with it and mm -hmm. showing other people. So there's like this amazing uh incredible like attachment to both the work that both of you have done yes. which is show that this is something that is not going to ever end mm -hmm. and how do you live with something that is going to be your companion on your journey for the entire and the entirety of it I was talking to a family member today as I was driving home from my own psychotherapy mm -hmm. session to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder and in my family we we there, I'm probably the only person who is openly talks about going to psychotherapy and, and dealing with talk therapy. Uh -huh. And this beloved relative said, made a joke about, you know, like an offhand joke about, I hope it, you know, gets better, it gets better. And I, and I made a joke back, which is like, oh yeah, I'm cured. <laughs> right? And I think I used to, before I was in long-term talk mm -hmm. therapy, I believed that there would be an end point to that. Mm -hmm. And now after five years, I understand that this is something that is going to be with me for the rest of my life. Um, I'm grateful that I actually have the resources for it. And that's one of the things that um, literature and art mm -hmm. really helps me understand that not only is your, does your book artistically and authentically tell your story, mm -hmm. but it's in a medium where it's not a doctor talking to a patient. Right. This right. is your people are going to identify themselves in your story. And like your sister said, um, that wanting to pass out the copies and say, please just read this because you may identify with even little, I identify deeply with your Catholic upbringing. I was raised <laughs> as a Catholic too. And the idea of like, when you're dealing with a psychological and also, a, I, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but bipolar disorder is also treated chemically correct like you there you take medication for it? yes i do okay um some people don't but i do right i take medication mm -hmm. and how long have you taken medication i have taken medication since 1982 
And the medications that you describe in here, because I think at one point, don't you take lithium? Yes. Mm -hmm. And your description of that is incredible. Like the, and that's where I was just so fascinated when I was reading your vivid descriptions of these experiences that happened 25, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and I worry, I was a little bit worried that like the recall of that and the having to talk about it over again would trigger you and in it, a way. And it, as I said, as sometimes in the writing of it, you have to take a break and right. you have to do something that's more whimsical. Right. But watching a Disney film. Yeah. Watch a Disney movie, <laughs> you know, do jump up and down, whatever it takes. But for me, it was worth you know, getting the story out. Right. You know, I had people who had actually, who were professionals, who um, suggested that, because I was trained as a fiction writer, and they suggested that I fictionalize my book. They said, you know, you really should write this as fiction, because if you do it as fiction, it'll, you know, it's, it's easier, because if you're writing fiction, you can change some parts. If something is painful, you can change that. But the reason I decided to do it as memoir, and it opens with actual hospital records. Right. And it's not, you know, the hospital records are chapter one. They are not um, um, an intro or anything like because they are my story. Yeah. So when it opens with the James Baldwin quote, stare the rat down, that's my story. What you have there is what I went through. And so it's a matter of, you know, this is, this is my story. And I think it makes a lot of difference when somebody looks at me, and I'm 60 now, and they look at 60-year-old me and look at psychotic 22-year-old me. They see that you can live a good life with this illness. Right. And people need to have some examples. Um, Dr. Jameson has talked about um, what she calls the silently successful. And I was living well with bipolar for many years before I wrote this book. And I think for me, had I been closer to the time of the diagnosis, I wouldn't have been able to write the book. I had to have some space from it. That thing is, so recovery in every form, which I feel like people think that recovery is something that can only be applied to people who are recovering from addictions. Mm -hmm. But I really do feel that when you are recovering yourself alongside this disorder mm -hmm. that there's no way to d accurately describe it when you are in the middle of the tornado there mm -hmm. and and expecting people to actually accurately describe it and then trying to treat when they are in crisis and sometimes that crisis takes 20 years to mm -hmm. have time to reflect and stretch away from it um and i i think it's perfectly timed you had to wait until you had lived long enough to be able yeah. to be i don't know well, for me... To observe from a distance. You're able to see it from a, a, a good distance. Yeah, I could be treated in crisis. So that was why I was able to live well, because yeah. I was treated from crisis after I accepted the diagnosis. One of the things that Dr. Jameson says is that there are people who she calls the silently successful. Yeah, let's talk about that. We're talking about people with bipolar who have bipolar. There are people who live very good lives with bipolar diagnosis diagnoses and the reason we don't know about them is because we unfortunately 
have seen the media, and the media wants us to think that everybody with a psychiatric diagnosis is out shooting. Scary. They're, they're Scary. all shooting. Yeah. They're shooting up theaters. They're shooting up schools. And the truth is that people with uh, mental health challenges are more likely to be victims than to be people who are victimizing. But if it bleeds, it leads. So let's <laughs> let's throw it out here. And we don't want to talk about guns. Let's not talk about guns. Or racism, inst- institutional yeah. racist ideas, bigoted ideas that drive yeah. a lot of that. Yeah. yeah let's not, let's not talk about people that are shooting up churches. No, let's talk about did this person have a mental health challenge and, you know, okay, and if they did, that's because that's what the people with mental health challenges do. But what we have to understand, or what I understand, is that you can live a good life with a mental health diagnosis mm-hmm. if you do the things that you need to do. You have to figure out what is it that it takes to get well. Right. What is it that it takes to stay well? Like one of the things that I have that that is something wonderful that everybody doesn't necessarily have is I have accountability people. Mm. I have people who watch out for me, who are making sure, like Sharita maybe, and one of them has grown up to be one of my children, one of my daughters. It's like, mommy, you know? And it was it was really funny because my kids haven't seen the illness, but they know that if I need to rest, I will rest. Right. And my one daughter, she and she's bigger than me, She'll come and just lay on me, just lay across me, like mommy. So, you know, so I have that, I have that comfort. But you know, you have people that are that are looking. It's like I talk about um, when I go out and talk. My oldest sister, I have a sister. Her name is Valerie, and today's her birthday. Happy and- birthday, Valerie! <laughs> and she's in the book too. Yes, yes. and she's like an app. <laughs> if Valerie, when when you have um, bipolar disorder when you are manic or depressed there is a change in vocal cadence oh interesting and she can detect that she can detect it over the phone so she hears your voice speaking and she can sort of sense okay Sharita's about to head down the rabbit hole or she's about to shoot through the sky yeah like and just like being able that's so interesting mm-hmm. um what an incredible skill if we could figure out how to like duplicate her ability to hear well, that, that in your vote in your voice, actually, and at this point, it might be perfected. At um, the Heinz Prechter Bipolar Research Center in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, um, I don't know Sue's last name, Doctor Sue. Can't think of her last name right now. She is working on that app. Oh, really? Yep, she's working on that app. So that app that. What would happen if you were my person, Mm -hmm. that app would go, you would have the app. And when I call you, the app would pick it up for you so that you would be able to know that there was a difference. A change. Yeah, going on with me. There's been some research with um, Alexa and Siri as well to um, listen for voice inflections or changes in, in, in somebody's voice if they might be... Um, upset or whatever it, it's kind of like goes to that filter as well 
So the surveillance state, robots for good, <laughs> right? right? When the robots begin their unionizing, yeah. <laughs> we can have like the robots for good, yeah. machines for good. Yeah. No, I love that idea that we are living in an age where um, technology can benefit people that mm-hmm. are in that vulnerable community. Yes. And also vulnerable communities. Um, when I was talking with um, my family member <laughs> earlier about the concept of what's happening with like coronavirus and us being having to be isolated more from each other mm-hmm. and not being able to touch and how that's going to mentally affect people. Mm-hmm. There's going to be mental health issues that are surrounding what we need to actually do to stay to survive. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we don't have enough funding or even enough like um, general talking about mental health mm-hmm. issues in certain communities um, is damaging. And that's one of the reasons why like, I agree that your book and Dr. Jameson's book mm-hmm. need to be required curriculum for people to yeah. just the general population to mm-hmm. read because your book is just long enough, but it's not 800 pages. No, it's, it's a manageable. Not, yeah, we don't need an 800 page tome to read. And what you're saying, what it is called, it's bibliotherapy. Right. It's books as bibliotherapy. You read the book and then you connect with what you know with what the book is saying right so then and it's 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 a very hopeful story and i see you also as when you are describing yourself in this book i see you as a person who is even before you went to college you were involved in theater Mm -hmm. you got into the community and you were developing theater programs for other people and for children Mm -hmm. and there was a part of you that i believe was it's or it appears to me in my perception and reading of it was having these experiences inside your brain that you were trying to make external in a way that you identified would actually communicate your message to other people. Mm-hmm. But I also know as a creative person that sometimes you f- I feel as I'm speaking an alien language <laughs> and I don't think that anyone is really understanding the true meaning of the thing I'm trying mm-hmm. to express. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, when I read your book, I really felt close to you in that way. Um, that and your Catholic upbringing, your discussion of how important schooling was for you Mm -hmm. and showing us, not necessarily telling us, but showing us what it was like to live before your diagnosis Mm -hmm. and then to understand that the diagnosis was not this death sentence for your life, that you were going to be institutionalized and drugged beyond belief. You Mm -hmm. were actually able to actively participate in your healing And then also to explain to people that it takes decades to assimilate all this information and how lucky we are that you lived with your bipolar disorder for long enough to get to the point where you could explain it. Now, what I would say with that is that sometimes you can explain it sooner, but you're not you you're you for me, it was more being in hiding. It was more. I didn't want to share my story because of the shame. Who? Why did you feel ashamed of it at that point? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and I've I've heard this. I'm not an island for the shame thing. Um, when we feel shame, we feel. I feel like when I if I'm feeling shame, it's like I'm feeling that something's going on that I have done wrong mm-hmm. that for some reason I've done something and what I've learned to be able to pull put pull away from shame is that it is not my fault that I have 
an illness. Right. I don't have to hide the illness. Like there were two, two dimensions. Like I felt guilt because my family had to be supportive of me as I went through this. And for a long time, I felt like I was responsible for the emotional health of my whole Cole family. Right. You know, and that's like, no, girl, no. But the shame is I have to hide this. You know, nobody can know this. This is, this is a secret. People will think less of me if they know that I have this illness. And that's where the stigma comes in. You know, that people um, with the, the stigma comes in because people don't understand. And when people don't understand and they're afraid, then they put like a, a mark on you, like the scarlet letter. Right. And it's like, OK, well, we, we can't deal with you because you have you are somehow less than and we are right here. And so or this what, is what a normal life looks like. And yes. there's nothing we can't stretch that boundary in any way. Because right. it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the truth is that there really is no normal. Like I've asked people. I, <laughs> I did one talk once. And I'll, I'll ask sometimes, not all the time, you know, please raise your hand if you um, think you're normal. <laughs> what a great question. Please raise your hand if you think you're normal. Well, one guy, it looked like he was going to raise his hand. I said, hmm, looked like somebody in here was going to raise his hand. And I said his because it was a guy. And I said, but I've really never met anybody that's normal. I said, you know, quote normal, but I've never met right. anybody who's no We're all who we are. And, you know, I tell, I came out to tell my story because when people look at me, they're like, oh, you just look regular. And why would you say, you know, I've had people actually tell me that I do not have a bipolar diagnosis. Right. They told me. And I also think. <laughs> I said, no, you don't. <laughs> said, huh? There is so much language around the idea because when we originally talked about having you come in, the subject of the season was going to be invisibility. Uh -huh. And I immediately thought about the things that you're talking about, the silently successful, mm -hmm. the fact that like, oh, I look at Sharita, she looks healthy and well. <laughs> and I, 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 after I experienced a big trauma seven years ago, a lot of people yeah. looked at me and they were like, you look fine. And inside you're stretching against your skin. You're just pushing yeah. against it all the time. And I think that the reason, um, it is because of other people's discomfort. Yeah. And I was concerned, as I'm sure that you you might have been too, that like making, if I felt like a burden on other people. I don't want to burden you with the with the massive weight that this feels like. Well, um, with me, it was just my family. I didn't, I wasn't concerned about all the other people. I was just concerned about them. And then like the, the shame thing was associated with me. Like right. I didn't, it's, it's, you know, feeling ashamed of yourself like I wasn't strong enough to not have this illness right. and that you know and and that's an internal thing and that's something that I had to deal with even you know I did the therapy and I had to deal with understanding that if I had diabetes I would not be ashamed of having diabetes right. if I had cancer I would not be ashamed of of having cancer. So the thing that is important now in society is to let people see 
people who have mental health challenges. Let people see people who are living well with mental health challenges. And the, the thing is that everybody has mental health. Right. Everybody has mental health. Everybody, just like you have physical health, you have mental health, you have emotional health. We need to take care of all of those. So everybody does not have, on the other hand, a mental illness. So I have a mental illness diagnosis. I don't just have, you know, a, um, something borderline. I have a, a, a serious diagnosis, but what I understand is that as I live my life, I am proof that you can live well. Yeah. And that's the point. The point is that you can live well. And the book tells you how I came to that. Right. How did this lady come to, you know, we are talking about someone where it was thought eventually I would need a custodian. Right. Somebody would have to take care of me. So why, why was it possible for me to get married and not get sick when my husband died? Mm-hmm. Why was it possible for me to be left with a, a six-month-old and a 19-month-old and still make it? Right. Why was I able to, because I had already finished my um, bachelor's at that point, why was I able to go on and get a master's. I had to do something. My husband passed away. I had to get, I was a stay at home mom. I had to go get a job. Right. So, you know, <laughs> had to decide to do something. So I became a teacher and that was, you know, that was what I did. But, you know, you have the lady who I can't think of her name, who wrote the book about grit. You got to dig down in there and do what you need to do. And you have to come up with a plan. My husband was a preacher, but he was also a motivational speaker. And he used to say that you plan your work and you work your plan and you have to have a plan. So you say, okay, this is where I am. Am I going to stay down here or am I going to get up and do something else? And I think a lot of times we as humans don't realize we have much more in us than we, than we think we do. Like I have much more in me. So I had to say, Sharita, and I all, and I, I will not nullify the fact, you know, you said you talked about Catholicism. I, I believe in God and I pray a lot. Mm-hmm. I tell people I'm not pushing my religion on anybody. I'm not telling people what to do. When I tell people I'm a Christian, I tell them I am a Christian as in wanting to be like Jesus. Right. You know, that's, that's, you know, we don't need to talk about denominations, organizations, any of that. When I talk about being a Christian, and we talk about, you know, what Jesus Christ was about, that's, that's what I want to be about. I want to be about, which is not judgment, which is not condemnation. When was Jesus doing that? You know, <laughs> right. He wasn't running around doing that. In his off hours. <laughs> you know, apparently. He's taking a break. He, he put his hand up. He's like, I'm going to take a it's break. like, I can't be this cool anymore. I have to be, be uncool. Be a little judgy. I'll, I'll be right back to doing the whole Christ thing. Because the only, you know, uh, with, with the Bible, and I think people get confused, the only people that Jesus judged were the religious leaders. Right. Those were the people that got judged. The people who are making the rules. Yeah. And I think that you fuse your religious belief into your book. And again, it's part of your therapeutic journey and also part of your understanding journey because you talk about 
I mean, you talked about here just a few minutes ago about the shame. And I think that there's a lot of like, that can be tied up in the practice of religion, not in the mm-hmm. religion itself or in Christianity itself as I experienced it, but mm-hmm. that it can be in the practice of it yeah. that there becomes a shameful aspect of like, well, you didn't try hard enough to be better, which is dovetail, dovetails perfectly with the fact that you have a, a mental illness diagnosis mm-hmm. that is a disease and also genetically traceable in your own family and in other families Mm -hmm. where that should instantly remove any personal blame that you could possibly carry. It's not as if you willed it onto yourself or brought it onto yourself. And even if somebody had brought something on themselves, should we really blame them? People are just people and things happen sometimes too. It's, um, I'm just, I, I really love reading your story and I'm so glad you shared it. I think we're getting close to time. Are we? How are we doing on time? Yeah, we're doing fine. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, we um, five minute warning. Great. Thanks. Sure. Andrew's being really good with the time. And yep. Thank you. That's okay. what I'm qualified for. <laughs> well, we we we've talked about shame some. Right. And we want to talk about Dr. Jameson and my talk. Yes. So you're speaking on March 21st, which is in just a couple of weeks, actually, yes. with Dr. Jameson. At the City Lit Festival. At the City Lit Festival. At the City Lit Festival, which is the wonderful book festival that they have every year. Right. So it's the 17th City Lit Festival, and it's at the Enoch Pratt Library. Here in Baltimore Here City. Here in Baltimore City, at downtown. On Cathedral, on Cathedral Street. Street. Right yep. across from the Basilica. Yes, yes, it's right across from the Basilica. Um, it's in the Wheeler Auditorium at 1 o'clock. Okay. Dr. K. Jameson and I, and right now I cannot remember our moderator, but um, he's also a doctor. And um, we will be discussing mental illness unveiled. Okay. So we're going to be talking about bipolar disorder. Dr. Jameson, of course, is the expert. So we have a clinician to talk about um, mental illness from giving a clinical perspective. And then we have me, who's written a book, and I am going to talk about having a mental illness and mental health challenges from the perspective of being an African-American woman. I'm so glad you brought that up. From being a person of color. Right. Because what happens is people of color, a lot of, and it's not, you know, when I... I am on the NAMI Maryland Board of Directors. And one of the things I have learned in working with the National Alliance on Mental Illness is that, um, first off, men don't like therapy. Men don't, men, they're like, boom, we don't like therapy. And um, women of color, be we black women, be we Hispanic women, be we Asian women, be we, be we, Latina women, whether we are from the African diaspora, whether we are from the Caribbean, we don't, as a group, and I'm saying most of us, will not do therapy. You know, Asian women, they'll tell them, you know, you're too smart for that. Mm. Um, Black women, you're too strong for that. Um, Hispanic women, Latina women, just work harder. And you'll be okay. Right. You know, we don't do that. But also there's, I feel like the resources are not actually being provided to those communities in a way that actually is meeting them where they are. That's true. And saying to them, we, there is no shame in the fact that you are struggling with this psychologically mm-hmm. or you need pharmacological help as well yes. in addition to that because there is such a huge stigma associated with it because you're supposed to be strong. Right. Women in general 
are expected to be strong, Mm -hmm. but especially women of color Mm -hmm. are expected to to completely deny that they have strong feelings unless they become a caricature Mm -hmm. and then they become the angry person. Yes. And that's also stigmatizing because it's like, well, anger is an actually very healthy emotion (laughs) and everyone experiences it and we should be celebrating it. (laughs) And Jesus said, be angry and sin not. <laughs> That's, That's really what it said in the in the Bible. In the Bible, it said, "Be angry and sin not." So, so he is actually encouraging people to feel their feelings because you have yeah. to feel your feelings. You right, have to feel, exactly. You have to feel your feelings. If you if you have feelings, feel your feelings, but but don't don't sin. Like I can be I can be mad. And I can journal about it. Right, to, to modify your behavior, to like understand how to mitigate your behavior and your actions, but actually be able to have the space to feel your feelings. Yes. But what you're saying is that this community especially, I feel, is the thing that is invisible. Um, I'm working on the soundtrack for a film that's about 10 teenage girls aging in East Baltimore from mm-hmm. the age of 13 to 23. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene in this, in this documentary film where one of the young women talks about... Um, and she says it very casually that her medical professional said, I think you need counseling. Mm-hmm. And she sort of laughed about it. Mm. And then later in the film, one of the mentors, who's also a woman of color, says, we don't talk, this is stigmatized in our culture, and our communities. Yeah. And I think that's like the first step of removing the stigma. Yeah. Because then they, then at least those communities can seek access to those resources. Mm-hmm. And then the community of resources needs to meet them where they are yeah. without shame, without judgment. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why people have to come forth. That's why my book needed to be a memoir and not a fiction. With, that's, and you personally talking about it. Yes. In your pe- physical presence. Yes. <laughs> the people, people, people have to see, because you know, sometimes somebody has to be the first person. Right. You know, when I heard you sing and talk about the trauma that you suffered. Somebody has to talk about that. So you humanized that trauma. So when I stand up and say, you know, you see this really sick 22-year-old woman who really had no insight and really didn't know what was going on, that's me. That same person is me. No, I didn't end up. And I have to add this. Um... I told you they thought that I would need a custodian. I ended up being caregiver, care manager for my parents. My father passed away in December. My mother will be 88 on Saturday. And and to think, you know, if if I had accepted that I couldn't do anything, then when it came time, I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing now. Um, I need to say the quote. The quote is, um, don't. Don't deny the diagnosis. Try to defy the verdict. And that's from Norman Cousins. He was talking about cancer. Mm-hmm. But it applies to so many other things. And it applies to what I'm dealing with, what I have with the mental illness. I am living extraordinarily well with a mental health diagnosis. Right. And I am not the only person who is. And I decided that I would come out and talk about it because sometimes... Somebody has to be the trailblazer like you. Right. Somebody has to come forward and say, okay, this happened to me, and this is how I'm doing. I'm doing okay. I might have two bad days, but I'm doing okay. Right. Or I'm doing well. And then they could, because I've had people just really share and unburden things with me. And the thing that I will tell you that's really something for me is that I'm very private. 
one of my closest friends just laughed. Like, Sharita wrote a memoir, very <laughs> private. You know, we laugh about that. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, so, but the other thing is by me sharing my story. Other people have shared their story with me. Right. And I've always been that person that doesn't want to know anybody's business. I've always been like, don't bring it over here. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And so, so how does that feel now? Are you able to set that boundary personally where you can say, like, I'm hearing this person's story, but I'm not taking it on? Well, this is very interesting. And this is because of, this is because of prayer. It really is because of, of prayer. I'm learning to take it in, but do the Henry Cloud boundaries thing. Okay. Dr. Henry Cloud, he wrote the book Boundaries. And you, you have to listen but give it over. You know, it, okay. if if you if I'm listening and it's like Henry Cloud said, you have to understand that you have a gate. I mean, that you have a fence around your property and you have a gate. So you can let things in your gate mm-hmm. and other things, you close your gate up. And it's right. like, nope, don't want you in here. Don't want your dog in here. Don't, you know, so we're not going to do that. So you have to understand, we have to understand um, for me, I've found that there are a lot of people that are hurting. There are Christians that are hurting. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of people that are hurting. I, um, one of my profound things, I, a young man came and told me his story. And it, it really hurt to listen mm. to his story. But I knew because he had heard my story. He, he was motivated get, to share. Yeah. Yeah. He could he could he could get his story, he could get some of his story out. And, you know, now that I've I'm going through the grief process with my father, you know, people will say, Oh, don't share that. Just hold it in. No. 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 Better out than in. Tell your story. You know, um, Ursula Le Guin said that there are a lot of things, and I'm not quoting her correctly. Um, she said there are a lot of things that will pass from life, but storytelling will always be something right. that is with us. People will always tell stories. People will always pass down stories. I look at us as a species who's basically been chattering at each other for <laughs> hundreds of thousands of years about every topic possible. Yeah. As soon as we learn to talk, we are like, do you want to talk? I want to talk. <laughs> and we, 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 we overcome by that, yeah. listening to other people's stories. If I look at, listen to your story, and your story is victorious, and I'm like in the biggest funk, but I'm like, well, she did it. Right. I can do something. If she got up and did something, I can do something too. Right. I don't, and that's the thing about hope. You know, if I would, what I would hope, when I, I use hope, what I would, um, my my wish when somebody finishes reading my book, is that they would have their takeaway, is if somebody has spoken something over your life, you don't have to accept that. Right. You don't have to accept that negative. See what you can do, to to change that, to restructure your life. You don't have to think that to be so. You know, you can think a new thought and, and be okay. Right. It's like, I, I can say, because for me, and it's acceptance too, for once, because once I accepted my diagnosis. That seems I like that was such a powerful moment or time, not necessarily a yeah. moment, but a, a period of time when yes. you finally said, okay, the, and acceptance is such a huge part of the grieving process too. Mm-hmm. And I also think that 
there's you're dealing with a grieving process in here. The loss of the idealized life that you may have had for yourself. Oh yeah. And the true acceptance <laughs> of yourself is a is what something we all go through. Yeah. This is my body. These are my. This is my family. This is what I'm experience, and I'm. I we accept the the perceived losses in it mm-hmm. and the actual losses in it. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. You were oh, about go to ahead. Some... You were talking. Go ahead. <laughs> That's fine. We're having a conversation. Um, I I think we're gonna wrap up really soon. Um. Before we go, I want to remind everyone who's listening that you can see Sharita Cole-Brown talk about her book, Defying the Verdict, at the Enoch Pratt Library on Saturday, March 21st. What time do you know? 1 p.m. 1 p.m. in the Wheeler Auditorium. Third floor. The Enoch Pratt Library has been renovated. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Um, You can afterwards go walk across to the Basilica and have a moment to yourself to think about the words that are said. Um, She's going to be appearing with Dr. K. Redfield Jameson talking about living with bipolar disorder. Um, Before we leave, I asked you to think about something that you're radically curious about. Just take a minute because... um, to think about it, the idea of radical curiosity at the beginning of 2020 struck me mm-hmm. as something that I wanted to really focus on because it seemed really positive. In our American culture, we uh-huh. are at odds with a lot of people, and I yeah. think it's because of a lack of practice of being curious. Yeah. If we can practice being curious, I'm not going to say we. If I can practice being curious, mm-hmm. what I find out is that I listen more mm-hmm. and that I'm in the state of beginner's mind yeah. where I'm like a child and the person or the thing that I'm investigating can just unfold in front of me rather than me trying to pry it open and yeah. get all I can from it. Yes. I just receive more and I'm not perfect at that. I have a, That's like a sometimes a minute to minute practice of saying, am I being curious? Am I being <laughs> beginner's mind? Am I? And then sometimes I'll say it once in the morning and it lasts all day. And I'm like, sweet. I was, I was in that mode all day. So is there something that now that you've finished your book and you're talking about it, what's the thing that you're radically curious now about? I have the good fortune of living with a six-year-old. My six-year-old niece during the school week lives at our house, and she's certainly radically curious. And I think for me, what I'm radically curious about is what causes people to behave in the way they do. You know, what, um, what is people's, I guess it's modus operandi. Why are, you know, instead of me putting who I am on other people, mm-hmm. what I'm more curious about, especially doing mental health work, is how are people where they are at any given time? And me not putting, not pushing who I am on you, but opening up to who are you and why are you where you are at this time? And I need to listen and be able to accept that to listen in and not to because I have a tendency to to talk 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 but to you know in curiosity it's like okay you I've learned from my little niece you have so many things to teach me right you're a little girl you you have but you have so many things to teach me and people have things to teach us and you know so if I listen to you 
if I listen to somebody who's going through something, that's going to help them because I'm, I'm listening. And it, it, as Andrew was talking about the judgment piece, it takes the judgment piece right. and puts it over to the side. And I think, I know for me, if I don't feel judged, you'll get more out of me. <laughs> if I feel like you're judging me, I'm shutting it down. Right. You know, so I'm learning to really listen to where people are in their life and not try to force them to be who I am. Right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank what a you pleasure for to having see me. you and yes. to talk about this book. It's beautiful. Um, if, if I wanted to buy that book. I was going to say, where could we buy the book? Well, I actually have copies of the book. So if people want to um, do um, Sherita Brown Messenger in on DM, but you also right. can go on Amazon. So you can and buy it on Amazon. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can buy it on at Barnes and Noble online, you okay. can do Target online. There are several things that you can do. I think the Ivy has copies Great, of the, the book. Great, the Ivy Bookshop, and also <laughs> probably at Bird in Hand, um, and, and near Johns Hopkins mm -hmm. in Charles Village. So those are two bookstores in Baltimore. And also, if you go to the March twenty first event, you'll have copies there. Yes, that we'll have. Can pick up. Yeah, um, the Ivy will be um, sponsoring the book sales at the at um, the city lit festival at the city lit festival oh. and please come because even if you don't want to come and listen to me speak there are so many right. wonderful writers at the city lit festival come come to nikki finney's keynote at 4 30 but come to the city lit festival um, Carla Dupree is, has done a wonderful job with this festival. It's the 17th annual, as you said, it's at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. But we do want you in the Wheeler Auditorium <laughs> at 1 o'clock. On March 21. March, March 21. 21. <laughs> so thank you so much again for being here, for being so open, talking about your life, who you are, what you've done, and, um, and for just spending the time with us today. Um, my name is Ellen Cherry, and you can find information about me at ellencherry.com, and my music is available at ellencherry.bandcamp.com. Andrew, what about you? Uh, well, you can find my music at junestar.com, J-U-N-E-S-T-A-R.com, and also you can find my music at uh, junestar.bandcamp.com, and uh, yeah, take that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sharita, yeah. and um, see you again soon. Yep. Yay. Bye. <laughs> See ya.